Hi, I'm Bernard Leong and you may know me as the executive who has been an ongoing subscriber of the information since 2015. In my spare time, I want to find out why they have picked Asia as their first port of call after the US. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Jessica Lesson, the founder and CEO from The Information. Welcome Jessica and I'm very honoured to actually host you here for the first time on Analyze Asia. Thank you, Bernard. I'm so excited to be chatting. Yes, and I understand that you're currently in Hong Kong for an event which we're going to talk about, but I want to get to know you better. How did you start your career? I began my career as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, where I covered startups and up-and-coming tech companies. And this was uh, around 2005 when Facebook was just getting started, YouTube had just been bought by Google, Uber didn't exist, you know, a very different time. And I covered um, startups and then eventually the large Silicon Valley companies, Google, Yahoo, Facebook, and Apple for the journal for eight years and decided to start the information uh, about five years ago because I saw a tremendous opportunity to build a new type of business publication and we've been at it ever since. So I guess in your career so far, you probably have some personal lessons that you learned being a founder of a media startup. What are the interesting lessons learned there? So many lessons every, uh, every day is bringing new types of lessons. I think the thing that I continue to try and focus on is actually focus. You know, there's a very strong tendency to want to do a million things at once when you're very excited about building a news publication. It's a really exciting time in news and technology, and, and I think very easy to get pulled in a lot of directions. But the formula that's really worked well for us at The Information is relentlessly focusing on what our subscribers, who are business professionals in all sectors, are really looking for and, and hoping to understand about technology and how it's disrupting so many industries. And so by staying very focused, we've been able to maintain our fast growth and have real impact in our coverage. But you know, it is a constant learning that you have to um, go back to because it can be easy to get pulled in a lot of directions. So I understand that you're currently in Hong Kong. And what has brought you this time around here in Asia? So we have a four-person Hong Kong um, bureau that we've had for a few years now. And our team here is doing incredible reporting on Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, as well as U.S. companies and their desire to enter the China market, like Google and Facebook as well as, as writing about a lot of startups. I think we were one of the first to write about Ofo and Mobike many years ago, the first U.S. outlet to get a, an interview with the CEO of Meituan. So, you know, I think our team here has been on the ground covering important stories in, in China and Hong Kong for our global readership. I always love to visit them, so I try and get here as much as I can. This week, actually tonight, we're also hosting our second event in Hong Kong. We've got a number of leading investors like Ruby Liu and Annabelle Long. We have the um, head of Uber Eats Marketing in Asia as well, and a number of other investors as well. So this is just a chance for us to bring our subscriber community together in Asia. Our model, we're, we're a subscription business, and um, we include events as part of the membership. So, um, you know, we don't charge our subscribers anything additional, but like to bring them together to learn from one another as well as learn from our journalists. 
I have to attest to the fact that I've actually interviewed Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief, and also Juro Osawa, who's one of the reporters from the information to discuss some of the stories they've covered, and they have been great. And I'm also very impressed by the fact that even yourself and Shai were just plugging all the women speakers for this show without mentioning a male speaker for the first time. I think that was totally refreshing. Yeah, I mean, that we were just delighted to see that so many of the senior leaders we wanted to talk to were women. So that was an added bonus. So we come to the main subject of the day, and I wanted to talk to you about the information and your thoughts on Asia. But to start with, I wanted to know, what is the inspiration behind the information? How do you decide to start the news portal and try to distinguish the outlet against the many others out there? For me, it came down to two things. Uh, One was fixing the business model in quality journalism. As I mentioned, we're a subscription business. Uh, We're around $400 a year. And back when I was starting the information, nobody believed that subscription could work in news online. And what was happening is that the reliance on online advertising for publishers was leading to a race to the bottom in terms of quality. So you saw outlets prioritizing stories that would generate a lot of clicks, but didn't necessarily have a lot of substance. And, you know, in technology in particular, so much is happening the demand to really understand who are these companies, what are their strategies, um, what's going on behind the scenes. It was so intense that I, I felt that a subscription model where you lived or died based on your value to readers, not, you know, could you trick a reader into clicking on something, was really the better long-term model. So I, I really wanted to prove and believe that it was the best way to build a new type of news business around subscription. And the second thing was an opportunity to really rethink technology coverage a little bit. Back then and still today, I think too much coverage is is either, it's hypey, you know, can you believe this company is worth this much? Or, you know, it, it treats technology as something that doesn't affect everyone. They treat it as sort of what those crazy kids out in Silicon Valley are doing. And, and I think that's just a fundamentally very outdated way of looking at the tech sector and, and its impact. And I've always thought that the best way to understand what's happening in any industry is to really follow how tech is disrupting or enhancing that industry. So we've become a must read to executives in the auto industry by writing about what's going on inside of Tesla's autopilot division and what that means for the company, or how far is Waymo on the path to building a self-driving car. And so that was those sort of two ideas, the subscription business coupled with a sort of more holistic and deep view of technology were very exciting to me and, and I um, couldn't stop thinking about them. So I decided to spend my time focusing on them. So what is the current mission and vision of the information from your point of view? So our mission is really to be a must read for any business professional globally who's paying attention to the technology sector. And that's a very broad mission. You know, it goes well beyond wanting to be read by the influencers in Silicon Valley, which we are. Um, But it really, I think, speaks to this opportunity we see to use our expertise and deep sources within the technology sector to help build a sort of more relevant business publication. And, you know, that's why we see executives from Joe Tsai at Alibaba to James Murdoch in Hollywood or Mary Meeker in finance, um, who really subscribe and read us continuously because I think that there is this sort of big opportunity. So we have a very broad mission. 
we're still in the early days, but particularly in the last few years, we you know, have seen that sort of breakout growth just beyond the audience in the U.S. So what does the information currently cover and what are the key areas that you focus on, at least from the U.S. side and also Asia as well? You know, it's, it's pretty broad because our belief also is to let our reporters um, follow their instincts about where the story is. So we don't cover everything and we focus on quality over quantity. But we have excellent uh, in-depth coverage of all the major Silicon Valley companies. We recently had a couple of big stories about Apple's challenges in China that got inside some issues that hadn't previously been reported. As I mentioned, we've done a tremendous amount about self-driving cars and sort of a reality check of where the technology is and isn't. We focus a lot on finance and media as well. In finance, our team is, you know, usually way ahead on big deals and financings. Out here, you know, we were the first to report on major new financings for ByteDance, for instance, a company we follow closely. And, you know, the same in in sort of the media world. It's been a pretty exciting time of big deal making in media. And then across globally, both in Asia and the U.S., we're, we're always focusing on startups as well. We have a recurring series called Startups to Watch, where our team tries to shed light on companies you may not have heard a lot yet about, but we think are going to be dominating the headlines uh, in the next year. So we want to give subscribers a, a sneak peek. And that's also a big area of coverage. So it's broadening by the day. We have a newsroom of 26 people, which, you know, is small if you think of the newsrooms of the largest publications, but actually quite large if you think of teams that are exclusively focused on technology and business. I did a media startup in the past and actually because it relies so heavily on advertising, eventually you managed to get it sold, but actually have heard your position in the focus on the subscription business model many times with the information. I actually agree with that position 100%. What I'm really interested to know is how do you come to this position and are you actually open to other business models upon the evolution of your site? So I came to it literally by feeling the pain of being a reporter in the ad-based model. When I was at the Wall Street Journal, I was getting a lot of pressure from my editors to work on stories that would get a lot of traffic. And that didn't always map to what I thought were the most impactful stories. So it was really that experience of knowing that as a reporter, I was being forced to prioritize things that weren't as impactful that really opened my eyes to the impact of the business model on the journalism. And I am absolutely open to other business models. I think, you know, as media companies grow, many of them have multiple revenue streams, and I believe we will too. But I believe it's important to have a true north business, um, you know, to know the one that's sort of primary so that you can focus on the metrics that support that business and make decisions very quickly. I think it can be very complicated to have conflicting priorities as an organization. So subscription and being so valuable to subscribers that we're worth paying something for is really our true north. But I'm, I'm sure we'll experiment with, you know, other additional streams that sort of supplement that as we grow. But it's important to me that we don't lose sight of that or ever compromise that subscription focus. In fact, I recently read Yuval Noah Harari's new book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And I think one of the points that he actually made very concretely is that if you want to get the right news, you should pay for it. And I think the subscription model is very clear because otherwise there's no quality content. 
But I want to ask you another aspect of it is that growing a media business is extremely difficult in the US and of course in Asia it's even worse. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Is it because there's a difference between editorial control and business model innovation within the business that's actually making it very difficult to grow as a media business? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's difficult to grow a media business if you have the right business model and the right product. I think that there was an expectation maybe 10 or so years ago that because the internet had democratized content, anyone could be a publisher. And so you saw a sort of rash of people attempt to start companies where, again, if you don't have the right business model, if, if your business isn't going to grow and sustain itself based on a quality product, you know, it won't work. So I don't see starting a media business as very different from other businesses, but you know, you, you have to have a quality product in the right business model. And, and I think there was just this expectation that it was easier than it really is because um, the internet had democratized so much. So that's been our experience, you know, as startups in general are, are challenging. Media startups also tend to follow different growth curves. So they, they may not grow exponentially, but I think you know, they can grow in a very steady and strong linear fashion too. So that might also be a factor in, in the fact that there's this perception there tougher to grow. So I understand that the information has now an incubator to build new media companies. Can you briefly talk about the incubator concept and how do you help journalists to actually enter the digital era? Absolutely. So for our second year now, we are investing in four news startups that are trying to build businesses with some subscription component. And in addition to investing in them, we also help them with their strategy and their product and um, even give them some distribution across our readership and subscriber base. So we started this because, again, we, we felt that there was just this tremendous opportunity to show that quality journalism is alive and well if the product is high quality and if the business model is there. And, you know, as the information, we don't cover every topic under the sun. And so getting to work with great journalists who do is a real privilege. So um, this year, we actually have two Asia-focused publications. China Money Network is one of them, and Global Coin Research is another. Additionally, we have another publication that covers innovation in Canada and one that covers diversity in the tech sector. So it's a really fun for our whole team to get to share some of the things we've learned, what's worked as well as what hasn't, and also get to work with tremendous journalists who are learning to be entrepreneurs. So it actually has been great to see the stories in Asia covered by Shai and his team. I want to take a step back. Why did you decide to bring the information to Asia? Because typically many U.S. media companies like to go to Europe first, but you went to Asia first. We did. And, and there, I think we were just following the story. I mean, there are two places in the world that consistently generate billion-dollar technology companies, the U.S. and Asia probably specifically China. So it was very obvious to me that there were stories and companies here worth the investment of being on the ground. And, you know, was fortunate to get to know Shai and, and just had huge belief in him and his ability to grow a team as well. And, and, you know, that's always important when you're placing a bet in a certain market. So it was listening to what our subscribers wanted and following the news and being able to work with Shai that sort of led to us starting out here. Yeah, we, I mean, we had a 
Hong Kong office before we even had a person in Los Angeles, which is <laughs> an hour flight away from our <laughs> hometown. So yeah, it's been very exciting. And, and as a reporter, I always just loved coming out to Asia myself and, and felt it was always very eye-opening. And I, I think it's very, very challenging to capture those stories if, if you don't have a team on the ground. What do you hope your subscribers in Asia, such as myself, who's a senior executive, won't get out of reading the information then? You know, our, our stories really aim to provide some sort of competitive edge. You know, there, there, sometimes that may be knowing about a big deal first, um, that's something that's a little more market moving. But often it's also just understanding how companies operate. Particularly larger private companies don't share much. They don't share their data. You know, it's hard to know what exactly is going on inside of DD right now. How is the business really doing? I think that letting our subscribers in on some of that strategy and how things are going can, can really be very exciteful. And we hear from our subscribers that it helps them in a million different ways, whether it's uh, thinking about trends or understanding better a company that you might want to seek a partnership with. That sort of edge, I think, is very important to us that we provide it. And you know, for example, we've now published over a dozen organizational charts for companies ranging from Uber and Didi to Facebook and Netflix. And, you know, these are maps of the top hundred or so executives at the company and their relationships. And that's a really example of incredible level of depth where you can drill down and find the person responsible for this thing. And that's sort of the level of, you know, differentiation we try to, to bring. And I think if we can help our subscribers, um, you know, if you're an investor, even if you get two new investment ideas a year from reading us, we think that's worth the subscription. So those are the kinds of things that when we're publishing, we're really thinking to ourselves, has, has this really shed light on something that will help someone go about their job? So from your observations in China and the U.S., do you see any significant differences in culture or even how your team covers them here in Asia? Well, I think there's tremendous differences between the U.S. and China culture. It's like where to begin on, on that point. Um, last time I was in Beijing, one of the hot startup trends were these sort of pop-up vending machine stores. And it was so funny. I got off a plane in Beijing and landed in the U.S. and saw headlines that one of these stores had tried to launch in the U.S. And there had been basically a revolt and they had had to abandon their plans immediately because culturally U.S. consumers, you know, were afraid that they'd put small businesses out of business or whatever. But it was it was like night and day for the same trend within 24 hours. So I try to remember that. And I also feel like every six months or so when I go to Beijing, the startups that are hot have completely changed. Usually the entrepreneurs are still around. They're just doing something different. But I feel like there's been this very, very rapid cycle. I think our teams, um, you know, we try to stay focused on the kinds of stories we're known for and, and not to get on the treadmill of covering everything. And I think that's true for our team in Asia as, as well as in the U.S. Our team out here is just, uh, they're incredibly well-sourced. And so I'm constantly amazed how they balance being ahead of big breaking news while also doing these, you know, very in-depth features about how Didi took over 99 in Brazil and what that means for the global ride-sharing war or, um, you know, in-depth profiles and most important investors. So I think our team out here is very adept at going back and forth between uncovering new scoops and stepping back and doing longer form work. 
I want to ask you some questions about some of your recent editorials. And I think I've actually enjoyed that article about why the product doesn't determine the success of the company. In fact, I think I also have just read your interview with Kevin Systrom on Instagram. Can you elaborate on why successful companies need more than just a good product to stay great? Absolutely. So I think there's, um, and it comes down a little bit to definition of product. So you can see in many different ways. But what I was writing about is how the best companies don't invent something magically out of their pocket and then, you know, invent something else magically. Like, you know, there's this sense, I think people hold up someone like Steve Jobs is just having this incredible product imagination, right? And, and this special touch in inventing things. And in my experience, if you look at a Google or a Facebook, there, there was some original invention, you know, an original idea about how to do search better or in Facebook's case, it was the concept of a newsfeed. But what really propelled these companies and their financial success is constantly iterating that. It's getting a product that has enough traction that you get a huge amount of data and then just refining and refining and refining that product based on the data. And so I think, you know, good product work looks a lot less like, let me pull out my sketchbook and dream up the next big thing. And a lot more like, can you kind of grind it out and, you know, continue to learn and evolve the product? And so when I hear people say, oh, you know, Snap is only one great product away from success again, or that CEO has a great product touch, and the implication is they'll just kind of invent something out of thin air that will change the trajectory of the company. I think that just doesn't jibe with how the most successful companies succeed. And, and you know, for every company that even Apple has had plenty of flops in products as well. So that, that was what I was sort of arguing for in that column, that the successful product companies, they chance upon something that basically spews off a ton of usage and data that they use to constantly refine it. And it's a little bit of a, um, frankly, it's a less romantic view of product, right? It's, it's not what you would say in your founding story, right? That we, we will perpetuate this idea that there was a spark of inspiration because that makes technology leaders seem superhuman. But I, I think it's a bit disconnected from the reality. It's true. If you look at the history of US companies, you also find that it's not actually the product. For example, General Motors, General Electric, they've been almost more than at least a few decades. They probably have something more than just having a product to stay great, right? I mean, not today, but maybe in those days that they were successful. Absolutely. So with the current turn against social media companies such as Facebook and also the Me Too movement, I think your site was one of the first to break the Silicon Valley stories and also fake news as well. And on some level, technology backlash from the politicians and public in the US and actually everywhere else, even in Asia as well. What are your thoughts on how tech companies will cope with these issues then? I think it's going to be challenging because, as you said, it's coming from all corners. You know, companies are facing heightened regulatory scrutiny globally. I don't think it's going to kill any of the large companies, but I do believe it could slow them down. And you know, we're seeing tech companies are still doing big acquisitions, but we haven't seen an acquisition on the scale of, you know, Facebook buying WhatsApp in the consumer market or something like that. So I think everyone's just a bit more cautious um, because they don't want to draw extra regulatory scrutiny. I think by and large, it's a good thing. You know, companies should be extra aware of the impact of their products. I guess the last thing to add, though, is some of this does take a lot of time. 
you know, governments don't tend to move very quickly. So I, I think inside these companies, they're trying to kind of keep it as business as usual, but I, I think they do feel like they're operating, um, you know, they're just a bit more cautious uh, and that will likely continue. I thought I had my penultimate question. What is the future of the information for the next few years in your view? And what are the metrics that you will use to measure that whether it's a success or maybe you have gotten to where you wanted to be? So our main focus is growth. I think as a startup, it's less about hitting a certain number. I mean, I, when I mentioned our big ambition to be a publication that any business leader globally reads who's paying attention to the technology sector, you know, we, we have a long way to go, um, but we're, I think, well on our way. And so to me, I just say, are we continuing to grow quickly, even as our user base and subscribership grows? Are we growing at the same rate or faster than we did before? And those are the kinds of metrics that matter to me. And as we do that, you know, we can hire more reporters and more engineers and just better serve our subscribers as well. And so I think, you know, rather than have specific numeric goals, it's, it's just focused on keeping up that momentum and making sure that our journalism is having a big impact. It's a sort of very um, gradual, um, but yet aggressive approach, I, th I think we take. So, you know, I, I think the interest in the technology sector is not going anywhere. Technology is now dramatically changing. I mean, even the finance industry, if you think about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and just other ways and other types of fintech, other ways technology is changing that infrastructure. I think that's a major trend that we want to continue to cover aggressively. Uh, yeah, I could think of 10 other topics where, <laughs> you know, we're already thinking about them, but there's just an opportunity to, to do a lot more. I have my last question, and I think um, it concerns the future of media. I think one of the questions or one of the things I've been gathering from listening to people talking about media, whether it's in the U.S. market and everywhere else, is that it is a very difficult business. I guess, where do you see the future of media going? Do you think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, or is it just going to be what we are seeing now, where most of these major news outlets are actually going to go down because of the way how the internet has disrupting these industries? I believe you're going to see a sort of dropping out of the middle. And what I mean by that is I think the largest publications in the world will continue to do just fine. You know, they have strong brands, um, solid teams, uh, you know, and I, I don't think they're going anywhere. I think that they may continue to have to lay off and sort of downsize their staffs a little bit because their print revenue is tanking and digital isn't compensating but they'll still be around and doing great work. I think what you're seeing a hollowing out of is, you know, news, it's sort of the metro, the more local publications. They just can't support themselves on their old revenue streams, and it's very difficult to kind of make the transition. But, but I do think you'll see a number of new outlets as well. And, and again, um, to me, it comes down to the business model. I was just last week interviewing the CEO of The Athletic, which is a subscription publication that covers local sports. And, uh, you know, they have more than 100,000 subscribers and just raise money at a $200 million valuation after only a few years in business. They're also a subscription business, but they're doing great work. And I think on a great growth trajectory to really be impactful. So 
I, I wouldn't give up on the upstarts. I think having the right business model is key. We, we've seen a lot of news companies try and get launched too dependent on online advertising, and they're all pivoting dramatically from that model. But I think there's a lot of hope there. And still, you know, a relative stability at the top. You know, I think news had a, a distribution monopoly for a very long time when print and printing presses and trucks were really the only way to get information and that made the industry complacent. And the fact that news and journalism now has to compete with, you know, looking at WeChat or whatever other forms of online communication and engagement or one click away on your phone, you know, that means that news and journalism has to continue to prove its value again and again. But at the same time, I think this has also been a very exciting time for the news industry. I mean, you mentioned the Me Too movement, which our reporters out in Silicon Valley were the first to uncover as it impacted venture capital firms. And many others really brought to light that as a major topic of conversation. Some of the political reporting going on in the U.S. has been similarly impactful. So, you know, I think there are a lot of uh, reasons to be optimistic as well. And with that, we probably come to the end of the conversation. And Jessica, many thanks for coming on the show. And seriously, I've been looking forward to this conversation with you. So in closing, I want to ask two questions. My first is, can you recommend anything from a book, podcast, movie, or anything to my audience that have impacted your personal or work life recently? I'm a real sucker for books about journalism. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that everyone is, but I actually am a big fan of Mike Bloomberg's autobiography. Wow. Okay. Which is called um, Bloomberg on Bloomberg. And it's um, quite old now. I, I think I heard he was doing a refresh of it. But I, I think for entrepreneurs and people who closely follow the media industry, I'd give it a strong recommendation. And since you like books on media, I've recently read this book over the weekend called On Press by Matthew Pressman. It's actually a chronological history about journalism and some of the values of today's technology is actually challenging. And I think that actually I heard it from Ezra Klein's show recently. So I thought I'd pour it and read it. And I actually agree that we need to have high quality journalism in order to stay ahead of the truth. And my last question to you is, how do my audience find you? So the best way to find the information, which is more important to me, is uh, www.theinformation.com. So that's our homepage. And I would love for people to check us out and sample some of our stories and, and hopefully subscribe. I'm also at Twitter, Jessica Lesson. Always happy and delighted to hear from people interested in us by email as well. So I can be reached at jessica at theinformation.com. And you can Google me at Bernard Leung, or you can find us on Analyze Asia through iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAS, and most importantly now, Spotify. And of course, tweet to me and give us your feedback. Most importantly, iTunes, I need a five-star rating to be discovered better or star on Pocket Cast and Overcast. And of course, Jessica, many thanks for coming on the show. And I would look forward to speak to you or even meet you someday in person. I love that, Bernard. Thanks for having me.